So turn in your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 4. I invite you to what's been called one of the most comforting passages in all of Scripture. Listen as I read verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God's grace. What is it? What is God's grace? Answering that question is similar in my mind to asking and answering the question, what is God's love? We could give a short, brief definition on each, but truly God's love and God's grace are measureless. One of the hymns that my wife uh, puts our little boys to bed with every night on an iPad, just playing hymn music, and it's on repeat, so I'm hearing this one a lot. It's the love of God. It's beautiful. It speaks of the love of God being greater, far greater than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win his erring child. He reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forever endure, for it shall forever more endure the saints and angels' song. A quick and raw seminary definition of love, like God's love is incomprehensible, just doesn't seem to do it justice. It's helpful to get a little soundbite. God's grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's good to have a handle on a definition like that. But when your life falls apart, and it will, these definitions will fall pretty flat if you don't really know the depth of the meaning of God's love and God's grace in terms of it being measureless. If you isolate grace, for instance, as only saving grace and say, well, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we are saved by grace alone. And that's true. And we believe that. And as a believer who's been regenerated once by the once for all cross work of Christ, you are saved by grace alone one time. And it sticks But just to end there in terms of the grace of God for your life, 
for what you need daily. If you stop there, you miss grace in terms of how it fulfills your daily needs. Grace is something that we live on throughout a lifetime. Grace is like a lifeline. The Lord brings us to life by grace and then he gives us a clear invitation here in scripture to live by grace. And if you don't think you need to live by grace, it's possible that your life has not become dark enough in terms of sin's circumstances. Not just your own sins, but the implication of sin's. The fallen world that we live in, the funeral that some of us attended yesterday over a lost loved one, that's when you need grace. We need grace every day for all kinds of experiences, but in our hearts, we need God and his nearness every single day. This grace is all we have left when life is killing us when we feel stripped in terms of every support that we try to cling to that's superficial, that we think can prop us up, that we think can get us through. It is then and only then that we need grace. We survive by grace. I've had people pull me aside before who've suffered deeply, who say to me, you're a preacher. Let me tell you. And it's like a prophet coming to me saying, preach grace. Don't forget grace. Preach the word. Preach grace. There's no contradiction there. One friend, he told me that 15 years earlier, I had taken him through Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. He said, Preach grace. He said, that saved me. And he didn't mean coming to Christ. He was saved. His life on earth was saved through hearing grace. Grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. That's saving grace. And saving grace is also, for the Christian life, sustaining grace. If you want to sort of put everything together that I've just said, just hear it this way. Grace is life. Grace is life. Yes, Jesus is the pinnacle of grace. He's the picture of grace. But there is a mountain of grace in Scripture that leads up to that pinnacle. All of the Scripture is about grace. And Jesus is at the center of that point. The Old Testament, people say, well, it's about law. And the New Testament, it's about grace. Jesus is who introduces grace. And yes, he came as grace and truth. But all of the scripture is about grace. It is. Think about it this way. The grace of God was introduced in Genesis 3.15. There was the fall. Adam and Eve fell. Injection of Sin into our world, into our hearts, into our experiences. And at Genesis 3.15, the promise was made. It was the gospel in the Old Testament, early in the Old Testament. He shall bruise your head. 
and you shall bruise his heel. Speaks of Christ on the cross being bruised and then crushing the serpent's head. Ultimately with the cross work of Christ. Then there was the skin coverings on Adam and Eve. That's grace. That's grace. That's saving grace. The scripture, is, it has two vantage points. It looks forward in Genesis 3.15 to the very cross work of Christ where Jesus came at the gospel, right? In the gospel time period that's described there. But there's another vantage point from Revelation 4 and 5 that's saying Jesus, the exalted lamb who is the lion, and, and he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and there's the grace of the gospel. Christ is creator and Christ is savior that is the song of heaven. So the Bible looks from two vantage points back at the cross and forward looking to the cross at the same time saying grace, grace, it's all about grace. But is that the only place that the Bible speaks of grace? No. When you understand that the Bible is bracketed in grace and the centerpiece is grace, then you begin to fill in everything in between with grace. You say, what does that mean? Well, Where there's sin ever in the Bible, in any story ever, there's grace. Do you understand that? There's always been grace. Always. Israel's redemption was grace. Abraham was called. Israel was captured. Israel was released. Israel became a nation. That's grace. They conquered enemies. Every time there was an enemy that was slain, that's grace. The law, though it's the law and it convicts and shows sin, that's grace. Paul said in Romans, you're the Jews. You have the oracles of God. You have the mouth of God in your life. That's grace. It's grace. The prophets were gracious. They were grace-giving warnings that they promoted. They were life-giving promises. That's grace. The Psalms are filled with grace. How do you survive life by grace? David, oh, how I love thy law. The law there is grace. The pre-sacrifices, every sacrifice that was to point to Christ, that was to symbolize being forgiven out of repentance is grace. Kings were grace. They pointed to David and then the king of kings, that's grace. Adam was graced. Eve was graced. Noah was graced. Abraham was graced. Job ultimately was given grace, Joseph, grace, Rahab, grace, Ruth, think of her, kinsman, redeemer, grace, Esther, given grace. These are all pictures of grace. David, he sinned, he sinned, but he was given grace. Daniel was a prophet of rescue and sustained grace. Israel returned to their nation, rebuilt the temple. That's a second chance. That's grace. Do you believe yet that this scripture is about grace? Jesus came. That's grace. The church was born. That's grace. The Holy Spirit has come. That's grace. The New Testament epistles teach us how to love and know Jesus Christ. That's grace. It's all grace. Every time the poor was fed in the Old Testament, every time there was a year of Jubilee, that's grace. Every time an alien came into a city of refuge in Israel, that was grace. Israel's armies conquered, that was grace. Grace is throughout. That's why in the New Testament, not just in the context of of Philemon and Onesimus being rescued, but everywhere, it's grace to you. Grace. You. That was the catchphrase. That's how people in the faith would greet each other. Grace to you. Grace is 
life. Grace is life. It's always there. And this scripture tells us that it's there and it waits for you to come get it. If you don't know this life of grace, you're not going to get it. And the Bible says it's there for you. How can you know that grace is waiting for you? These verses tell us. Look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. Great high priest, meaning Jesus and his coming as the ultimate fulfillment of every high priest that ever served in temple worship throughout the history of Israel. He came as a greater high priest. He came to sacrifice himself as the sacrifice and as the priest of his sacrifice. He is the high priest, both priest, sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. We've learned so far through Hebrews, Jesus is better than the angels. He's better, he's, he's the revelator as the son. He's better than the prophets. He's, he's better than everything before him. He is the revelation of God to us. How is God explained to us? It's through a son, through a God who became fully man and yet remained fully God, better than the angels, better than Moses, a better sacrifice, the high priest. The Levitical high priest um, was set in place in the Old Testament. And once a year, that high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer a blood sacrifice called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that was to symbolize the forgiveness of sins that was for God's people. Bill Mills, who was here last week, spoke of the fact that it, it was sort of a an interesting melancholy experience probably because your sins are forgiven and it's an apex point in the year, but it's all going to start all over again and you have to work through your sins and your life and then the day of atonement comes again. But not with Jesus. Sacrifices once and for all, it was sufficient, it was perfect and powerful. A Levitical priest would offer that sacrifice, but before he would go into the Holy of Holies, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins because he was an imperfect high priest offering a sacrifice that was less than perfect, though it strived to be so. In contrast to that system, there was a greater high priest who, according to verse 14, who has passed through the heavens. Pass through the heavens. This is a reference to Christ's ascension. He died. He was buried. He rose. He met with his disciples. He spoke of the kingdom of God. And then he ascended before their eyes. He went into the sky out of view. Some apocryphal literature speaks of Christ going through seven different heavens. The heavens speak of either a physical sky in scripture or the very presence of God. And so in one sense, we could parallel Christ passing into the sky and into the celestial realm and then ultimately into God's presence. We could parallel that to the priest in the Old Testament passing through three portals that are shown in the Old Testament, the outer court, the holy place, and then passing literally through the veil of the holy of holies. 
All of this was symbolized through Christ's ascension. He's the better priest. He's the ultimate priest. Now, in Leviticus 16, if you want to turn there, 1 through 4, we get a pretty clear picture about what was going on in the Old Testament in the symbolism of of the Day of Atonement and the offering that was given. It was a terrifying thing for a priest to go into the presence of God. His life was on the line as he did that. Nadab and Abihu had tried to offer strange fire and they were consumed by God in the Holy of Holies. Leviticus 16, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. All of this is preamble all of this is prologue to Christ's ascension he offers the sacrifice on the cross and then so to speak it's as as if in reverse symbolism he's offered the sacrifices but he's going into the presence of God and guess what our first point is simply this he goes into the presence of God on your behalf how can you know How can you know that grace is for you? It's because Christ going into God's presence, Christ as God going before God, isn't just to fulfill the symbolism of the Old Testament. It's not just to prove that he's a greater priest. Christ in his mind, Christ in his heart, goes there on a mission of love, there for you. He goes to provide the grace of God, bringing the blood offering, as it were, to say, this sacrifice has been made. It is perfect. It is complete. To tell us die, it is finished. But it's also to reach back to you with that sacrificial blood and say, I am your intercessor. I will give you grace at salvation and throughout your life. He's there, but he's there on your behalf, making intercession for you. He's there as your advocate. He's there as your intermediary. He's there because he built a bridge for you. He's there for you. This is the motivation of verse 14. You say, how does this work? He's a great high priest. He passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. So let us hold our confession. You're not going to hold the gospel high. You're not going to hold the gospel near. You're not going to hold the gospel strong unless you realize that Jesus is there because of you. He, He went out of the vision of the apostles into the sky, just like a priest going into the inner sanctum through the veil, out of sight. But all this flips on its head when you understand that he's out of view so he can reach back for you. He wants... In one sense, for you, by faith, to be there with him. Think about that. 
Think about that. We, by faith, can envision ourselves with Christ now, can't we? Ephesians chapter 2 states clearly in verse 6 that we've been raised up with him, seated with him in heaven. Jesus is there. We are there in his heart. And he is there with us now. He's with us here. So though he's there, he's here. He's omnipresent. He's built the bridge. The bridge that we enjoy by faith, removed by the sky in heaven. However, all of this is to build the bridge of grace. Hebrews ten nineteen is the parallel passage. I'm just going to read it. We'll preach it in about five years. Just kidding. <laughs> Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest or great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean with an evil from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Jesus is far, but he is near. His title, if you see verse 14, displays this. He's Jesus, the Son of God. Yes, the Son of God. He's made of the very substance of God as God, very God, the second person of the Godhead. But his name, Jesus, speaks of his humanity. Why is that important? Jesus is fully man in heaven on your behalf. Fully God, but His full godness takes nothing away from his full 100% humanity. He's in heaven physically there, just like you are physically here. And he loves you just like you are as a fellow human being there for you. Jesus, the emphasis is humanity. There's been a lot of emphasis on Jesus and his deity being better than angels. But there's a shift here in chapter 4 towards Jesus Humanity. He wants us to realize that though he is far, he is near to us. He's not just near to us in terms of his presence, but he's near to us as a sympathetic high priest, a man whom we can relate, who relates to us. One at the throne is fully God, but fully man. In Hebrews 4.14, all the way through 10.18, where we were just reading, speaks of the humanity of Christ. So what is the application? Again, it's to take hold of the gospel. You say, I don't want to read about the gospel. I don't want to read the scripture. I don't want to talk about Christ. I don't want to talk to anybody about Christ. Have you forgotten, my friends, about his intercessory, intermediary, loving work that he's doing in your life today? If you realize he is near, then the gospel is coming to life in our hearts. We're to grasp it, seize it, take hold of a confession, homologeo. It's something that we're saying that we know is true. We're speaking something that we are familiar with. These were Christians that the author of Hebrews was speaking to. And he's saying the day of atonement has had its final Day, don't forget that. And Jesus is there for you. He went where we couldn't go. He went where we could not be so that he could open his sanctuary up to you. 
Bill Barrick, a professor from Masters, um, said this. He said, the tabernacle was but a limited copy of the heavenly reality. When Jesus entered the heavenly holy of holies, having accomplished redemption, the earthly facsimile was replaced with the reality of heaven itself. Freed from which is that which is earthly, the Christian faith is characterized by the heavenly. Don't be thrown by that word heavenly. Heavenly means you should live a life of faith that is stirred by a life of grace because grace is life. If you want to be soft in your heart, think about grace. Seeking grace from anywhere else but Christ is tragic. Have you ever seen people try to find mercy in another man, another thing, a title, a status? You need to know that Grace can only come from Christ. It doesn't come from anywhere else. Well, number two, secondly, Jesus feels what you presently feel. How do you know that grace awaits? How do you know it's there when you need it? How do you know it's there for the taking? It's because Jesus feels what you currently feel. Let's broaden it. He feels what you have felt in the horror story moments of your life. And now, whether it's that bad, worse, or not as bad, he feels what you're going through. And that's what verse 15 communicates. It's profound. Just let me read it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Feels what you presently feel. He's answering a question that immediately is asked by people, and they say, Look, Jesus really can't relate to me. He's a high priest on this level, he's at the right hand of the Father. He's not relating to me and my life and my travail. He's there, I'm here. He's God, I'm not. He doesn't have a sin nature, I do. He doesn't understand me. This is all fiction. This is Play acting. What are we talking about here? But we need to remember that the emphasis here is on the humanity of Christ. Hebrews 2, chapter 5, speaks to the same thing. 5 through 18. If you look specifically at verses 17 and 18 of Hebrews 2, you see it there as well. We've covered it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brother's in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able, that's dunamis, he is powerful to help those who are being tempted. What does that mean? How can the sinless savior truly sympathize? Well, realize Jesus is majestic, but he's also tender. Do you remember him in the gospels, weeping over people, loving people, touching people, healing people, reaching out, whether men or women, raising the dead, near to the brokenhearted, all day long, healing, 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 there, 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 preaching as much as people wanted to hear it, praying all night long, going back again, grace upon grace, graciousness, disciples who wouldn't listen, who wouldn't hear, who wouldn't understand, Gracious, going to the cross, restoring Peter. He denied him, denied him, denied him, restored him, restored him, restored him. It's grace, grace. 
He's sympathetic and he's the same Jesus there in heaven. I told someone who was going to die one time. I said, the person was just like, I don't know what it's going to be. I mean, she knew she was going to die. I don't know what heaven's going to be like. It'd be like the disciples walking around with Jesus on earth because he's human and he's God and he was human. He was God. It's relating to Jesus. It's knowing him. We have that relationship now. Sympathy is not just Jesus being aware. Listen to this. It's not just that he's aware of what you're going through. Like, yeah, I can, I can relate mentally. No, he's there experiencing it, entering into your pain with you now. That's what this promise is. He's feeling it with you in your greatest hour of need. This is a revolutionary thought in religion. Um, God is a loving father that's woven into the fabric of the New Testament. But even for the Jew, the Jew realized and understood the holiness of God and the separation of God. And God being holy, meaning he is wholly different than we are. They understood that. And in one sense, to understand Christ in this way for an Orthodox Jew, that would almost be blasphemous. To the Greek, they had a pagan philosophy of Stoicism. So they were Stoics believing in what was called the apatheia, where God like this would be incapable of feeling anything at all. It's a philosophy that would say if man could influence God's emotion, then man is higher than God. So God cannot be influenced by man's emotions. The Epicureans, they saw it. This way, they said, it was another Greek school. They said, gods, the gods, the pantheon of gods lived in perfect happiness and blessedness in a state called the intermundia, which means the spaces between the worlds, not even aware of the world. So for the Jews, God was distant and different. For the Stokes, God was feelingless and impassive. Epicureans, gods were detached and uncaring. That's not so different than our world sees God today or what they call God today or their gods today in naturalism, worshiping nature or having a God who is just a force or mystical, unaware so that the world can be unaccountable to do whatever it wants because God doesn't really care. Or a world in despair where we are isolated in evolutionary thought, where we're just in a chain reaction of events and we're just going through here now, we'll die and it's over. There is no afterlife. These philosophies just kind of roll over and over again and take on new forms, new, new ideas. Secular hum- humanism where people are self-focused and worshiping self Christianity is utterly in a world of its own. Christianity is amazing. Let's just stop for a second. And this is not in any way a pride moment, but just think about it in terms of humility. Can you believe we get to know God? Can you believe we get to have God love us in this way and know, watch this. Can you believe we get to know that God loves us in this way? That's amazing. That's why it's called amazing grace. It's, it's incredible. It's not just the saving grace, which is incredible, but it's the sustaining mercy and grace of the gospel in our lives every day, knowing Jesus cares. Does he care? Yes, he does. 
sympathizes with our weaknesses and walks through all of them because he walked through them as a human before. Kent Hughes put it this way, said Christ was ignorant. This is when he was a baby. I was just looking at some baby pictures this week. It's amazing what babies look like, right? It's incredible. Triple chins and that's cute, right? It's awesome. Bald. It's awesome. Christ was ignorant and was taught. He walked like a baby before he walked like a man. He thought and talked like a baby before he thought and talked like a man. But you say, I need sympathy with my sin. My sin's what's messed me up. Jesus can't relate to that. He's outside of that. And so he loves me, but he can't enter into that, right? He never sinned. That's true. But I think that this is an excuse. Can become a crutch. We say, I'm just needing to feel sorry for myself as a victim of my sin. It's a... It's transforming sympathy into some sort of cul-de-sac of sorrows where you just want someone to feel sorry for you and your sin, but you don't want it to get better. The sympathy of Christ is meant to meet you where you are and lift you back on your feet. But you say, but Jesus never experienced guilt. He never experienced inner temptation and the guilt of sin or the shame of sin. It's true. He never experienced his own sin. Because he never sinned. He never experienced temptation from the inside. But guess what? He has experienced shame and guilt of sin. But it was your sin and my sin that he experienced that regarding. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He didn't carry his own sin and sin's guilt and sin's shame, but he surely carried your sin and your guilt and your shame and experienced that to the fullest and experienced an uncountable amount of hells while he died on the cross for those sins. So Jesus knows the effect of sin. He knows what it feels like feeling the shame of sin, the guilt of sin. Hebrews 4.15 says he suffered the fiercest version of temptation he was it says but who in every respect has been tempted as we are in every respect people will minimize that so we could have been tempted this way or that not internally but he felt things externally to their fullest say the temptations came from the outside the nature of sin is from the inside but this isn't play acting. Listen to what... I, I read the book uh, Mere Christianity about 15 years ago, and it was profound by C.S. Lewis. It's a great book to go through just as a foundation for Christian living. Listen to what Lewis says about this. He says, it's a silly idea. It's a current idea that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army, this is a throwback to World War II, post-World War II, the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. 
That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the full weight of temptation. What it truly means. He's the only complete realist. Jesus experienced the full range of temptations. He experienced, he came face to face with its delights, its joys that it offers. Sin was no stranger to Jesus. He saw its attractiveness. He saw the reality of it. So again, Jesus is not imagining what your temptation is. He's not imagining the effects of you giving in to that temptation. He's not imagining the pain you're going through because of your temptations. He's entering into that with sympathy in a shared experience where he's reaching out, calling you to grace. Jesus is without sin. He never sinned. But that doesn't mean he disregards you in your sin. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. That's what verse 15 says, yet without sin. But him being without sin means he never yielded, meaning he, full, the full, he felt the full weight and the full power and the full curse and the full implications of sin on his shoulder, shoulders, even though he never broke. Think about him in the garden, sweating great drops of blood. Just crying out to God, crying out to God, help me, God, help. And he actually made it. Not my will, but your will be done. He made it. Jesus is sinless. The writer does not say that Jesus was identical to fallen humanity. A lot of people will try to, in the name of some sort of false humility, say, well, you know, we're all in this together and Jesus is sympathetic. And so these sort of confession sessions turn into group therapy and nobody repents of their sins. That's not what Jesus is promoting here by being sympathetic. His sympathy is to change you. His sympathy is to transform you. His sympathy is to relate to you and say, I get it. I understand. You fell at that point. I still love you. Let me pick you out of the miry muck. Put your feet on a rock. Make your footsteps firm. Put a song in your heart and send you on your way. Take another step. I'm there with you. I won't throw you away. I understand the shame, the guilt, the power, the temptation of sin. I bore your sin on the cross. I've paid for it. Now let me restore you. Sympathy is not a cul-de-sac of sorrows, as I said before. Sympathy is meant to transform. It's meant to help. It's grace. A wise mother I listened to on a podcast this week encouraged her daughter with words throughout her life. Listen, quote, you're not the first person this has happened to and you won't be the last. This daughter grew up as a full adult looking back and said this had a profound impact on her life saying, by hearing that phrase, she knew that she was not alone and she felt welcomed back into the human family. Let's put this biblically. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
There's nothing that you're going through, have been through, or will go through that someone else has not already gone through, is going through, and will go through. You're not alone. You're not isolated in your sin. There is a way out. There is a path forward. There is hope. And God provides that way of escape, the path of endurance. So what is God like? Is he different, unfeeling, uncaring? No. And let me give you a shock phrase that I read a long time ago, it's by Alistair McGrath. He's a theologian from the UK. What is God like? He put it this way. It was a study on Christology. He said, God is Christ-like. Think about that. How do we know what God is like? We look into the face of Jesus Christ. We find grace there. We find truth there. We find all the array of attributes Justice, wrath, mercy, grace, it's all there. It's all pictured for us in the ultimate picture of Christ that's found in our hearts because the lights have come on for us to see him. Well, number three, our last point, how do we know grace is there when we need it, when we go to it? Jesus invites you to draw near. That's verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. All of the first two verses lay the groundwork for seeking grace. Grace is life. This vision of a gracious king, a humble king who is God and man is what compels us to draw near to grace. Not shrink back, but draw near. Drawing near with Confidence. The word confidence uh, speaks of drawing near to God joyously, confidently, boldly. It's instant access. The opposite is shrinking back in fear. Exodus 19.12, when the law was given, when God's presence and his holiness was on display at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19.12. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. That's separation. Hebrews 10, 29, talking about punishment, talking about um, the blood of Christ being profane, people who are unbelievers, people who are outside of grace. It says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Hebrews 10, 30. The Lord will judge. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's all true. God is holy. Unbelievers are presently under the wrath of God. But as a believer, you enter in confidently, not in a cavalier spirit, but with a bold confidence. Christ, I'm yours. Christ, you love me. Christ, you know me. You've been there with me. You'll be there with me. Help me, God. You're Peter sinking in the waves. Help me, Lord Jesus. That's it. That's the grace of God. That's life is grace. There's no barrier that applies, no law, no sin. It's a throne of grace. Yes, it's a majestic throne, but it's a throne. Look at verse 15, 16, a throne of grace. He's seated on the functional throne of grace where he just pours it out, meads it out, gives it out. He's reigning grace in your life. It's there for the taking. We come courageously, We come fearlessly. Listen to this quote. The basis of this confidence is that the throne of grace is not marked by a naked majesty which overpowers us, but is adorned with a new name, that of grace. This is the name that we ought always to keep in mind when we avoid the sight of God, the glory, the 
The glory of God cannot but fill us with despair, such as the awfulness of his throne. Therefore, in order to help our lack of confidence and to free our minds of all fears, the apostle clothes it with grace and gives it a name which will encourage us by its sweetness. It is as if he were saying, since God has fixed on his throne a banner of grace and a fatherly love towards us, there is no reason why his majesty should ward us off from approaching him. How do you think said that? Just curious. You could ask me later. Grace is repeated two times in verse 16. Look at that. Grace, a throne of grace, and then finding grace. You receive mercy. Mercy is a synonym there. It's just three rapid fire, grace, mercy, grace, three versions of grace, three versions of help in a time of need, sustaining grace. The word help is a nautical term, bontheon, it's the support cables that were used to rescue a ship that would be falling apart. Paul, when he was being transported to Rome, when he said, I want to appeal my prisoner situation before Caesar, and he's going to Rome, Acts 27, 17, they're going through the Mediterranean, they're going under Crete to find shelter in the island, and the boat starts to break apart, and the prisoner, Paul, suddenly takes leadership of the vessel, and he's telling them what to do, and they're they're hoisting up, you know, hoisting up a, um, a lifeboat for them to get in, to go to the island. And they, verse 17 of Acts 27 says, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. But the ship was breaking apart. They used support cables. Those support cables, that's the same word for help here. God's gracious support cables come around us on the hull of our ship to keep us from breaking apart as we are running aground. God's holding us together. That's grace. Don't miss grace. Grace is the whole Bible. Grace is your whole life. Grace. It's God's sanctuary where someone cries to someone, capital S, someone who knows our need before we ask and we're calling for help and we get rescue in the name of a person. He wraps us together in support. Well, uh, I want to end with kind of a lighthearted thought. Um, I, I grew up kind of as a boxing fan because of my dad. It's his fault. Good parenting. We watched boxing together, and um, I learned about it. And there was a local uh, town hero called Purnell Sweet Pea Whitaker. Probably some of you have heard of him, maybe not. But he's from Norfolk, Virginia. I'm from Virginia, that area. And um, he was fighting, and so we went. And Evander Holyfield was there to, as his good friend, as the heavyweight champion of the world, and did a little wave and a PR thing. And um, he was the reigning champion. And my dad who has never met a stranger, got an idea. He said, you know what? We're going to meet Evander Holyfield because he's the heavyweight champion of the world. And if you know my dad, he, he just does stuff like this. There's a lot of stories like this. Um, anyway, so he said, I know where the after party will be. I just do. And so it's at this hotel. We're going to go there. We're going to stand at the doorway entrance. And when he walks in, we're going to meet and talk to him. He's a professing believer. It'll be fun. I'm 19 years old, college student, studying ministry. Hey, let's go to an after party. That'll be awesome. 
So as an obedient son, I go with him. We're standing at the doorway and we're there and, and the, you know, the music is going in the background. The bass is heavy and I'm standing at the door like this. I'm like, oh, and my, you know, my dad's not into that either. We just want to see Holyfield. And so my dad, as he was wont to do, said, you know, we're here in this moment. This will be great, but I got to go to the bathroom. So he leaves. He's like, look, stay here. Stay here. You'll be fine. Don't leave here because he's going to walk through. I know it. I'll be right back. So I'm hearing, you know, boom, boom, here in the base, not, not looking that way, just kind of, and it was fine, you know, but, but just kind of focused. But suddenly this massive white dress shirt is walking in front of me. And so just out of like muscle memory, I just reach up and grab his arm. That's a really dumb thing to do. I didn't realize, but I was taking my life into my hands. His bodyguard was smaller than him. And it was that moment where I'm looking up and he's looking down at me and I was speechless except I could only say champ you're you're the champ champ and uh you know I I released his arm which felt like lead and 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 things suddenly normalized and humanized and he was just a person and we were talking about the Lord and talking about whatever and my dad showed up and we had a great time it was good and that's kind of a light-hearted illustration speaking of the grace of God that I didn't die in that moment or go to jail it's a way for us to know that grace is there for the taking um, we you know, we might exalt men and and be intimidated but we just need to to break through we just need to reach up and grab hold of Jesus and say I love you he's going to look down in your face and say I love you back I'm there for you. Grace is here. Does God care? Does he care to do anything about your situation? Absolutely. The answer is here. He sacrificed himself because he loves you to bring you to life. And now he lives to make intercession for you because he loves you and he wants you to live your life for him. Be confident, move in joy, move towards Christ.